The Beat Church in Pflugerville, Texas. Bringing you messages of inspiration, hope, and freedom. Turn up the volume and get ready for the truth that will set you free. So we're talking today, if you, um, I'm going to grab somebody. Donnie, can I get you for a second? Sure. Front row right here is a box. Um, if you were here before and you did not, uh, two weeks ago we talked about this guy. We talked about little Jesus. Who was there for that? When we talked about having a little Jesus in your life, right? Okay, or coming to church to make sure you get a little Jesus. So we're handing them out so you can't say that you never got a little Jesus at church. But we're passing these out because this ties into our message from two weeks ago, and it's going to tie into our message for the next few weeks. So if you did not get a little Jesus at church before, and you would like a little Jesus to go along with our message as we talk, as a reminder, uh, just raise your hand. Donnie's going to pass them out um, and so that we can have one. You're welcome to have an extra one if there's a, you know, another member of your family that wants one. But we just want to get these passed out so you guys can participate in what we're talking about. I posted these, and I got a whole lot of, uh, or I handed these out, and I got so many pictures of people sending me pictures of them and their little Jesus someplace, somewhere, at some time. <laughs> Every time I opened my phone, it was like, oh, here's Jesus in someone's hair bun. Oh, here's Jesus at the grocery store. Jesus with a box of Wheaties, or Cheez-Its. Was that, that was you. Yes. <coughs> Brittany Post, Jesus standing with a box of Cheez-Its, offering Cheez-Its to us. So uh, it was pretty funny. So feel free to send me whatever pictures that you want. Now, we know that Jesus is not a doll. And this is a little review of the message from two weeks ago. We know that Jesus is not a little, tiny, plastic, bendable Jesus, right? Don't we know that? Okay. And so we talked about being overwhelmed by life because we are underwhelmed by God. In other words, the problems in our life seem bigger than the God that we serve. And part of that comes because culturally, it's been taught within the church a lot about Jesus being our personal Lord and Savior, which he is. But he is much more than that. He is the God of the universe. We talk about Jesus living in our heart. Yes, he does. By his spirit, God comes and dwells with us and lets his presence be within our heart. But as we talked about in the last messages, he doesn't actually just specific Jesus actually come and just get small and just live in our heart like that. He's not just in there hoping to get out. I don't have to go talk to Carlo and say, hey, would it be okay if Jesus comes and has a sleepover in my heart tonight? Because I heard he's in yours. And do that, that's not how it works. But the idea of him being in our heart and giving us a heart is that God is everywhere at all times. The Bible talks about that. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's God. He's bigger than everything. He's in everything. He's everywhere. And so he can come and make his presence within us. But that doesn't define his size or who he is. So if you look at the back of your little Jesus, just so there's no confusion, it says not to scale. This is not how big he is. God is much, much bigger than this. He's much, much bigger than what you think of when you think of God. And so we went through Job and how it talks about how can you loose the belt of Orion and the constellations? Can you do all these things? Do you set the boundaries of the ocean? Do you do all these different things that God has done? And if not, then we 
are nowhere near the size and the magnitude of God. And neither are our problems. Whatever problem you might be going through may seem big, but you know what? If you took that problem out or that person that's causing a problem in your life and you set them out in the waves of the ocean, guess what? They are not going to set the boundary of the ocean. They're going to get swept over and possibly sucked out. Because the problem is also not bigger than God. God is bigger than all of the things that we can think of. The Bible says in Ephesians 3.20 that he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or imagine. Our thoughts can even get to the level of what God can do. And so today we're going to dive in a little bit more that God is bigger. God is bigger than that. Well, God is bigger than what? Everything. And this is the question. What's going on in your life right now that you've struggled with or that you've had a difficulty with? It could be a negative thing that you're working through. Some kind of situation. Say, man, this is so big. What is it that you're facing? What dream or idea that could be positive that God's given you a vision for? And you say, oh, I want to do that, but it's so big, I don't know if I can do it. Because we can be overwhelmed by good and by bad if we're underwhelmed by the size of God and who God is. And that he's there with us, he's there to help us. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 6, we're going to read through several stories that are in the Bible today, and we're going to look for a common theme, a common thread. So think about that as we read this and we go through the different stories. What do these stories have in common? Okay, Joshua chapter 6, 1 through 5. The Israelites have escaped Egypt, a little background. They're out wandering the desert for all these years, and God finally takes them to the land that he promised them, and it was the land of Jericho, and they had to go in and take over this land, which was full of people doing all kinds of wicked things. You know, it's murders and, and sacrificing of children. There's all kinds of crazy stuff going on. And God says, you know, I want you to settle this land. I want you to defeat this. And I want you to go in and make this land yours. And so they go there, and the whole city surrounded by these huge fortress walls to protect the inhabitants. Too big and too mighty for the Israelites, who are not trained soldiers. They're wanderers that have been in the desert for 40 years. Prior to that, they were slaves for 400 years. So this is not a well-equipped, well-trained group of people that have some great background, like, well, I'm military, my dad was military, my grandpa was military, like, we know how to do this. This is some people that don't have a lot of experience trying to fight and win big battles. And they go up to Jericho, and here's God's instructions. It says in verse 1, Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. So they didn't get the advantage of surprise. The enemy knows we're here. (coughs) It says, No one went out and no one came in. But then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. Now here's a question. They're standing outside right now in the desert, looking at huge fortified walls with trained armies behind them. And God says, Look and see, I have given them to you. You have won. There are no signs of victory yet. I'm going to read that verse again. This is important. See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands with its king and its mighty men. He's telling them, look with your eyes and see that I have already delivered them, that I've done this. If you look with your eyes, what do you think they actually saw? They saw reality. Walls, armies, we haven't won. Nothing's been delivered. 
So what is God talking to him about? Is God a liar? Is he saying, look, I've delivered him? And they look around and go, well, I don't think he has. I mean, there's big walls. and I I don't think God knows what he's talking about. Maybe you should take him out of your heart so he can see better and hold him up so he can see how big the walls are. So it's either God doesn't know what he's talking about, God's a liar, or he is referring to something else. And he is. What he's referring to is not our natural eyes to look and say, look, this is finished. He's talking about the eyes of faith. It's the same eyes that the Bible instructs us to keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. It doesn't mean to hang this Jesus on your rearview mirror and never stop looking at him. I'd be getting a call to go visit you in the hospital because you got in a wreck. And when they say, why'd you get in a wreck? They say, well, because my pastor said, keep my eyes on Jesus. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about your physical, natural eyes. And he's not talking to them about that. He's telling them, look up with eyes of the Spirit and see what I see. I have defeated the enemy. I'm bringing the enemy down. He's talking about having eyes of faith. He's talking about having a heart of faith. He's talking about having a, a experience within us that's not identifying with what we're seeing naturally, but with what he is saying spiritually, and then trusting in God and in his word about what's about to happen, about what's taking place. And so it goes on, it says, uh, to the result of how he wants them to win this, it says in verse 2, the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've delivered Jericho in your hands, along with its kings and fighting men. March around the city once with all of the armed men. So the men that you have that have some arms, march around. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carrying trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times. With the, police, with the priests blowing the trumpet. So God says, we've already defeated them. Now what I want you to do is wander around these walls for six days. Do you think you would get tired carrying all your gear and wandering around for six days? Do you think getting exhausted like that is a great way to prepare for battle? I got an idea. How about before we play this basketball game, how about we run 40 laps? I got an idea. How about before we start this, why don't we, before we move Molly, why don't we all just get up in the morning and go to the club and do like a two-hour workout? See what our max bench and our max reps are. And then we'll go move Molly. Is that a good plan? Let's expend our energy before we need our energy. No, but God told them, walk around, do this for six days. And then on the seventh day, do it seven times. So morning to dark, just go walk around and around and around and around. God doesn't seem to be concerned about using up all their strength. Why is that? Because he doesn't need it. God doesn't need their strength to win this battle. And I can guarantee you, because of human nature, that they're wandering around these walls and around these walls and around these walls, and people are starting to murmur. They're starting to complain. They're starting to question the plan. They're starting to get frustrated. We know from their stories earlier in the Bible that they complained all the time. They complained that all he was feeding them was manna, which is kind of like a bread. They got tired of it, and they said, we want meat. And they complained so much when God was providing for them that the Bible says he finally sent so much quail in. Like he just sent herds of quail that direction. He covered the ground where you couldn't even walk. It was just quail everywhere. And that's all they ate for days. They were eating quail until they finally said, we don't want any more meat. So they complained about bread, and then they complained about meat. They, they had a history of complaining. So now they're wandering these walls, 
looking at them. God says they're down. They're not down. They're still there. And now he wants us to walk around and around. By day one, I bet you they're complaining. By day two, by day three, by day six. Now on day seven, you get up and says, none of this has worked. The walls are still there. We have no victory. So guess what we're going to do? We're going to double down on this plan and walk around it seven times today. Who would follow that leadership? That's a tough thing to do. So what's God saying? That makes no sense. What's he saying to him? I don't need your sense. I don't need your smarts. I don't need your ideas. I don't need your solutions. He doesn't need their strength. He doesn't need their plan. He doesn't need anything of theirs to do this victory. His message is pretty clear in how he's treating them and how he's doing it. They go around, they blow the trumpets. It says, when you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout, and then the wall of the city will collapse. And the army can go up, and everyone can walk straight in. That's the plan. We're going to walk around. We're not going to use our weapons. We're not going to use sneak attack. In fact, we're going to let them know we're here all this time. And then we're going to blow our trumpets, make a big victory shout, and everything's going to fall down, and we win. He doesn't need their strength. He doesn't need their solutions. But there is something hidden in this verse that he absolutely needs. He needs their obedience. For his plan to work, what he's telling them to do, they have to do the steps he's asking them to do. I want you to go do this, and then I'm going to bring down these walls. Faith and obedience have to take place. Faith in who God is, obedience to follow what he says for this plan to work. But he needs nothing else from us. Because he's bigger than those walls. He's bigger than that army. He's bigger than the Israelite strength. He's bigger than the Israelite solutions. He's bigger than the entire situation. So he says, you know what? Have faith and follow me. Do what I'm telling you to do. Walk in obedience. So let's go on to another story. The Philistines. This is a story of David and Goliath. But I'm going to focus on the actual Philistines because Goliath in the Bible, this giant that little David beat, he was this huge man. They said that his spear was like the shaft of a weaver's beam. It was like not even just a spear. It's like a beam, like a normal person doesn't even pick it up. He's trained in fighting. He's trained in war. This guy is a killer. And so David goes up to fight him, and here is what Goliath actually says. It says he looks over at David, and he saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome. And handsome. Oh, quite nice. <laughs> you got to get ready to go into battle, and he looks over. He doesn't even see competition or a warrior. He's like, hmm, that kid's kind of cute. Somebody get a picture. I'm going to post that on my Instagram before I kill him. That's all he sees. There's no threat there. This kid's cute. Oh, can come in here, kind of handsome boy. And so he goes on, he says that he despised him. So he looked at him, he despised him. He said, this kid's trash. He's not worth anything. And he said to David, he says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? As he went out there, just his shepherd's staff and his sling. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. He said, come here. And I will give your flesh to the birds and to the wild animals. David said to the Philistines, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. Goliath looked with his natural eyes at David, saw, Oh, he's cute. And then he despised him. 
and started telling him how he's going to destroy him. He despised him in part because he was challenging all the armies of Israel. Come, fight me, all the soldiers. Come, fight me. Send out your best man. And when they sent him out, no doubt that probably hit him at his core as an insult. You send this kid out, you think he can beat me? That's just, I'm disgusted by this. Despise him. But David looked, and he didn't see in natural eyes. He saw in spiritual eyes, and he said, I don't come against you with the natural weapons. I come against you with the Spirit of the Lord. My God is bigger than that giant. My God is bigger than that situation. He did not ignore what was going on. It was obvious. Read that last verse again. He says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. He recognized the situation was real, and I'm outgunned. And then he said, but my God is bigger than this. I'm going to win. It's okay to be a realist and to have faith. It's okay to look at your marriage and say, my marriage is in trouble, but my God is bigger. Real faith is not looking at a troubled marriage and saying, my marriage is good, God's good. Real faith is not looking at a difficult financial situation where you can't pay your house payment and you're about to get evicted and saying, oh, God's my provider, I'm fine. Nope, not worried about it. Until eventually the landlord or the police come knocking on your door and say it's time to get out. And somebody says, well, what happened? I thought you were doing good. Yeah, in faith I'm doing good. But you never told us that you were struggling. You never told us you needed help. That's because I'm a faith person. I don't say that stuff. That's not faith. Real faith can acknowledge where you are, that you're standing in front of a giant wall, that you're facing a giant that has better weapons than you do. But real faith sees that and then moves from the natural eyes to the spiritual eyes and says, I see what God is going to do. God's bigger than this. This is not to scale. He's not a little tiny God. And then it requires us to take with our faith and put obedience with it and begin to walk out what God's asked us to do. David took his weapons out there and he fought Goliath because God had stirred him to go face that giant and defeat it. So he walked out in obedience to do that. So faith coupled with obedience. Here's another story. This is in Egypt. You know the Israelites were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And they're in there, and there's a point where Moses comes to deliver them out of Egypt, and he goes to the Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh keeps playing games. I'll let him go. I won't let him go. And God keeps bringing plagues upon Egypt. He brings a, a plague of flies. He brings a, a plague of, of uh, locusts. He brings these different plagues onto their country and onto their place so that the, the Pharaoh would say, okay, I'm going to let all these Israelites go. I'm going to obey the Lord and let them go. What a lot of us don't know, it's not included in the Bible because it wasn't needed, but it is in the historical documents when you look at Egypt and the pharaohs and things like that, is that if you go back and study that out, that there was a sanctuary where the pharaohs and the lead uh, people of Egypt would go and worship. It was their church, the place where they worshiped their multiple gods. And in that, there was a narrow passageway carved into the rock, and you would go and you would wiggle yourself through the rock, get through there, it's very narrow, 
you get inside and it opened up into a big round room. It was their sanctuary to worship their God. And on the walls, all around that circle, were painted in different stations the different gods of Egypt that the pharaohs were worshiping. And those gods match the plagues. There was a frog god, there was a plague of frogs. There was a, each, each one, as you go around, they were matching one of the plagues. What's God saying in that? Why would God send plagues into Egypt that specifically match what they worshipped as gods? We believe our God's a frog god. We worship the frog. That's the biggest god. And God says, you know what? Watch what I can do with frogs. I'm going to send frogs in and swarm you guys. I'm bigger than frogs. I'm bigger than that God that you worship. I'm bigger than this one and this one. And one by one with Pharaoh through the different plagues, he addressed each of their gods and said, no, here's me and I'm bigger than that. Oh, you worship the sun? Watch this, I'll do this. Oh, you worship the, the river? Watch this. And water? Watch this, I'll turn it to blood. Oh, you worship this? I'm going to make... One after the other, he dealt with each one until Pharaoh finally just said, enough. And sent the Israelites out. That's not how I would have planned it. That's not how a military person would have planned it. But it was God's plan. God's plan to show himself bigger than the gods of Egypt, both to the Egyptians and to the Israelites, and say, I am the great I am. I am bigger than everything. And he didn't need the Israelites' strength to get them out of there. They didn't have to form a search party and kind of pull everybody together that had similar views and were going to go out and attack and fight together and have a plan. He didn't need either one. What he needed was for them to have faith, obedience, and to follow Moses out of the land and to do God's plan. Here go on to Samson. This is in Judges 15. I'm going to read verse 9 through 16. Samson was one of the judges. Before they had kings, the Israelites had judges that would just judge the different activities going on in the land and kind of be like <coughs> a moral compass. Samson was one of those, and Samson had different problems in his life. He had ego, and he was selfish at times, and didn't listen and obey the Lord. But this is a situation where he had been, been wronged, and they came to grab him as a prisoner. And it says in verse 9, it says, The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lai. And the people of Judah asked, Why have you come to fight us? We've come to take Samson a prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. And then the 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock, of Edom and said to Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? So again, they were under a kind of a slave type thing where there was a government over them that was oppressing them and they was pushing them down. He says, don't you realize that the rulers over us? What have you done to us? And he answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. In other words, they've oppressed us, they've attacked us, they've harmed us, and I finally fought back and did something about it. And the rest of the Israelites are saying, why did you do that? Because they're bigger than us. So you might have thought you made some type of headway. You might have thought you did something good. But now they're all mad and they're all coming back. Why didn't you just leave it alone? Sam said, well, I just did to them what they did to me. And so they said to him, well, we've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Like, we want no part of your revolt. We're just going to tie you up and give you, you they can have you. We don't want to do this. And so they're going to hand him over. And Samson said, you know what? Swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. And they agreed. And so he answered, they said, we will only tie you up and hand you over. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two ropes. They tied him up and they led him up from the rock. 
And as he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting. I mean, they're excited. They finally got their guy. They're going to kill him and slaughter him. They're getting him over like they should. It says, The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, Samson, that is. And the ropes on his arms became like charred flax. In other words, they just became weak. He just busted them off under the anointing of the Lord. And it says the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and he struck down a thousand men. And then Samson said, With a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. He said, With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. His oppressors are coming to get him. His own people refuse to help and turn him over. And then the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and it doesn't come upon him to have his own strength or to have his own plan. He literally finds the jawbone of a donkey, and he kills a thousand men men with it, and then he ends with this ridiculous statement, which depending on what translation you read, they use other words besides donkey, but his main point is, he says, you know what, they tried to do something, but I grabbed just a donkey's bone, and I made donkeys out of them. What a bunch of fools, they couldn't stop me. Not because of his own strength, but that verse says that the power, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And he did it in God's strength. What does that tell you about God? It tells you that God is bigger than that situation that Samson was in. It tells you that God could fight the enemy not with another army, not with the right tools, but just looking around and finding scraps and saying, oh, here's a jawbone. Watch this, Samson, let's get to work. That God is bigger than the situation that's being faced. One more story, and then I'm going to get to how this applies to our life. But Judges 7, verses 1 through 15, this is the story of Gideon. Now Gideon, an angel came to him and called him a mighty warrior. At the time he called him a mighty warrior, he was hiding out because the Midianite armies were attacking their people and pillaging their people, and he was hiding And the Spirit of the Lord came and said, Mighty warrior. And called him to take an army and to defeat the Midianites. And so he goes to fight the Midianites, and he has, there's about 135,000 men that the Midianites have in their army. And he starts out with, I think it was 20,000 men that they gave, that he gathered. And he goes and God says, you know what? Kick these ones out. I don't want them here. Kick those ones out. I don't want them there. And he's narrowing down Gideon's army, his little group of people to fight with. And it keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. It gets down to where he only has 300 men to fight. And so then this story jumps in. It says, early in the morning, Jared Bell, that is Gideon, and all of his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of, of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I can't deliver Midian into their hands. You have too much strength. You have too much ability. I can't deliver the enemy in your hands. You know, sometimes we can have too much of our own strength. We have too much of our own smarts, too much of our own ability going, and God looks down and we're praying that we want to be delivered, and God says, I can't right now because you got too much of your own strength going. You got too much of your own solutions going. Once you let some of those go, I'll, I'm going to step in. But you got to drop some of that stuff down first. And so he goes on to Gideon. And he says, "If I was to do that, he says Israel would boast against me and say that my own strength has saved me." So now announce to the army: anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So twenty-two thousand men left, while ten thousand remain. But the Lord said to Gideon, "There's still too many men." 
Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. And if I say this one will go with you, they'll go. But if I say this one will not go with you, then they won't go. So Gideon took the men down to the water, and there the Lord told them, Separate those who lap water with their tongues, as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. So those that kneel down with their hand and drink water, and those that just stick their face in the water. He says, split them up like that. And then he says, <coughs> separate those who lap, who do that. And he says, 300 of them drank with cupped hands, like, uh, and others lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, with 300 men that lap, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. He narrows this down. He says, now I've got such a small army that you have no chance to come back afterwards and say, look what we did. Look how smart I was. Look how I fixed this relationship. Look at my great counsel. Look at what I did in my finances. Look at what I did in my job. Look what I did in my addiction. Look at what I did. But God stripped things away to the point where the people said, the only way we have a victory is if we have a victory through God. Because he's trying to show himself strong to them. He's trying to show himself bigger to them. He's trying to show that the same God that saved them is the same God that wants to watch over and protect them and care for them now that they are following him. And so this happens. Now, here's a funny part of the story, starting in verse 9. It says, During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. Gideon's still afraid. He had been afraid through this whole story. And he said, Jesus, or God said, If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen at what they are saying afterward you will be encouraged to attack the camp he said you know what if you're still too afraid that I can't win with these 300 men go down to the camp where there's 135,000 enemies and just listen to what they're saying sneak in do a spy thing check them out and so they go in there and here's what they hear starting in uh, verse 13 says Gideon arrived just as a man was telling one of his friends in a dream, I had a dream, he was saying, a round loaf of barley bread came tumbling down into this camp. And it struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. And his friend respond, <coughs> responded, now if, if your friend walked up to you and said, hey, I had a dream that a gigantic loaf of barley rolled down the hill and crushed my house. What would you say? Like, what would your thoughts be? Oh, weird dream, Right? What are, you, what are you doing? Like, that's taking veganism to an extreme, right? That's the taking the no wheat thing. That's huge. So he tells him this, and here's what his friend replies. He says, this can be nothing other than, there's no other explanation in all of the universe that your dream about a loaf of barley rolling down and crushing our camp. There's nothing else at all that this could mean except for the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelites. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. This dream can mean nothing. This giant loaf of barley rolling down the hill can mean nothing except for that we are going to all be defeated. That's a pretty big leap. And that rumor spread through the whole camp until the whole camp was so full of fear that God was about to defeat them. That in the night, God gave instruction to Gideon to spread his men out into three companies, and they took fire uh, torches, and they put them in pots. And then at a certain time, they'd blow the sound of the trumpet. They would break the pots. The fire would show all around the camp. 
and then the Midianites <coughs> would feel that they're surrounded, become afraid there in the night, and start swinging swords. And by the time morning came, all the Midianites had killed each other. The enemy had defeated itself. And what that story tells us, again, is that God didn't need their strength. God didn't need their plan. What God needed was faith and obedience. Believe in me that I'm bigger, and then do what I tell you to do. That was the path to victory. And they won that victory. The way that God wins battles is not the way that we win battles. The way that God defeats situations is not the way that we defeat situations. God will often call us to do something that seems not quite the way we would do it. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. God has victory for us, oftentimes in ways that require us to put our own ideas aside and just say, Lord, I'm going to believe, and I'm going to follow. I'm going to do it your way. Well, what's that look like? Well, that looks sometimes like I have a relationship that's broken, and that person over there has caused harm to me. And my wisdom says that the way to get them to understand the harm they've caused and the way to get them to change is I'm going to harden my heart and build a wall and shut them out. And then when they realize that they've really hurt me, eventually it'll sink in that they've lost my relationship, and they'll come back and apologize, and we're going to win this battle. Makes a lot of sense. God says to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us. God says to forgive those that offend us and hurt us. Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. God tells an opposite direction. People that don't have, and they're in a financially difficult situation, God literally would send his prophets in the Bible to their house and say, can you give me some food and, some, and give me some food and something to drink? And the little old lady with her son says, you know what, I've got one more meal to make for me and my son, and then we're going to die. <coughs> was she really going to die? Well, I don't know. She certainly felt she was. And he says, great, make mine first. Come and feed me. And then God multiplied her provision. It wasn't the way that you would think to do it, but it's the way that God said to do it. Well, then how do we know how God says to do it? There's a couple of ways. One is that we know through prayer. We pray and we ask God for wisdom. James chapter 1 says, If you lack wisdom, ask God and he will give it to you without reproach. In other words, he doesn't turn anyone away that comes to him for wisdom like that. He's going to give it to you. He's not going to say, well, I like Josh, but I don't like Mike. So Josh gets the wisdom. Mike, you don't. You get the stupid. That's not how he does it. If you come and say, Lord, I need your wisdom, he gives it. Prayer is one. The other is in his word. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And God's word tells us how to live. And so when we say, well, this is how God said to do it, we put faith in it and then we add obedience to it and our life begins to change and to move forward. Whatever situation that we are going through, God is bigger than that. But the way that we access the victory, like Jericho, is that he looked up and said, see, I've already delivered them. And they looked up and said, we see walls in their own mind and in their own heart. But by the spirit of faith and obedience, they looked and said, we see walls coming down if we obey and follow God's lead. So whatever your situation is, if you will look at it and say, do you know what? 
this is what I see in my natural, but I'm stepping over into faith, and I'm saying, do you know what? By faith and by following God's directions, His Word, how He tells me to live, how He tells me to deal with situations, how I'm supposed to interact with this, by following that and living in obedience, I am fully convinced that this situation, God is going to have a big victory over. And you can't have both. You can't have our, your own strength, your own ideas, your own ways of doing it when it's contrary to how God's saying this needs to be done and then say, well, where's my victory? I thought God was for me. God is for you. That's why he gives directions. That's why he doesn't need your strength and doesn't require it. Well, once you get strong enough, I'm going to show you how to break through. No, he says, right now in your weakness, in your frailty, in your failure, I will give you a victory. You don't have to get better. You don't have to turn yourself into something. I am something. And I will do this if you will put faith in me and begin to obey the way I said to do it. That's how I defeated little baby giants, little medium giants, little bigger giants, and super giants to come out of addiction, to come out of hiding in my closet, to come out of a business that almost went out, you know, several years ago, and we turned it into a bigger business that God blessed and did, was me being confused at times. We, when we were in Oregon and we expanded our business, we didn't have the money to do it, it didn't make sense to do it, but I, in prayer, I talked to Carrie, and I said, you know what, I feel like God's saying to do this, and we looked in the Word, and the Word talked about some things that had to do with faith and following God and that, and we did it, and we pushed forward, and the hand of the diligent will rule, and we believed in God's Word, and we followed His steps, and it grew, and it did that. But it came through faith and also through obedience in walking it out. We've been in hard financial times, and I read the Bible. It says, give, it'll come back to you, pressed down, shaken together. And I've looked at my finances and said, I don't know how we're supposed to give. But God's word says to walk around these walls seven times and leave my weapons and then just make a shout, and he'll do something. God said, go down and listen to the enemy. They're dreaming about barley rolling down and crushing them. I'm going to deliver you. God said he's not worried about that, just obey. And so we give, and we saw God's blessing come. You can apply it in any area of life. I've been through things where there's terrible offense. I was molested. I've been through situations where I've had longtime friendships that blew up and, and became a place where it could easily be a, a barrier. And God says, forgive, love, reach out. Not my way of doing it, but I've seen God bring restoration. I've seen God bring healing. I've seen God turn a negative into a great victory by following his way. So, Donnie, if you want to come up, we're going to sing this song. Uh, you know, we're going to go through, I'm going to read one more verse, and, well, two more verses, and then we're going to sing this song together. <coughs> Psalms chapter 2 says this, Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? This is the enemies of the Lord. Why do the enemies of the Lord plot always against his people? The kings of the earth rise up, and rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw them off, throw off their shackles. It's talking about coming and being violent against God's children, against God's people. But check out this next verse 4. It says, The one enthroned, talking about God, in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed <coughs> my king in Zion, my holy mountain. God's saying, you know, I see what's happening, and I'm laughing about it because I'm a lot bigger than this. I'm not worried. I'm not stressed. I don't have anxiety about it. I'm going to win this. And he laughs just at their mere efforts of coming. God is that much bigger. 
than all the problems and the things that we face. Romans chapter 8, verse 31, it says, If God is for us, who can be against us? And that verse, it is a question, and obviously, ultimately, if God is for us, no one can be against us because he's bigger. But our life experience tells us that there are things against us. So again, either that verse isn't true, or else there's a different understanding of it. The understanding of it is, ultimately, God is for us. Who can actually be against us and win? But there are those that try. And there's really three, and these are the three that we're going to focus on over the next three weeks. There's really three that can come against your life. One is the devil. Right? The devil's real, the devil's out there, and he can come against your life. So next week, the entire message is going to be on the devil. Who he is, what he does, how he does it, it's going to be a tale of the tape. This is God and who he is. Here's the devil, who he is. So we can have a better understanding of what we're actually really facing when we talk about the devil. He's not just artwork. He's not just a super powerful darkness that's in the shadowy corners. The Bible talks a lot about him. And so we're going to talk about who is the devil. How does he interact with our lives? What do we do to find victory against him? The other that can come against you is other people. We live in a world with real other people that can come against us against our peace, against our, our joy, against all different areas of our life. And so we come, we say, how do we defeat that? How do we win that battle? How do we have victory when other people are trying to come against and destroy our life and our peace that we have in Christ? So we're going to talk about that in two weeks. A biblical view, not our view, which is going to be different than our own view. And then the third week, we're going to talk about the last really party or entity that can come against us. And that's ourselves. We can come against our own self. I sat in counsel with lots of people where really the only enemy that's destroying their life at the moment is them. The Bible talks about that. And so we're going to not ignore the enemies of life because they're real. But we're going to one by one look at them and say this is what the Bible says about them come to an understanding of that. This is how God says to deal with them. And in faith and in obedience, I'm going to line my life up with that. And then what will happen? Victory will come. And we're going to spend this whole month talking about that. The overcoming power of a big, big God. So let's stand to our feet. We're going to sing this song, Overcome. And we're just going to leave out after this. And I just encourage you guys, whatever you're going through, God is bigger than that. Listen, obey, follow in faith, and God will bring it to a place of victory. Visit www.thebeatchurch.com and get connected with a community committed to applying these truths in their everyday lives. You can also give now to support our messages by visiting www.thebeatchurch.com give.